share with you. Let's take our Bibles and go to the Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Little boy went to church for the first time, never been in a church service before ever, and he was just curious about everything he saw. The song director did this, and he goes, what does that mean? He goes, oh, that means you're supposed to stand up, and he was asking his buddy next to him, and he said, oh, okay, and a little way later, the song director did this, he said, what does that mean? He said, you're supposed to sit down, he's like, oh, okay, and then a few minutes later, the pastor got up, and he goes, what's he doing? Oh, he's going to preach, and he opened his Bible, he said, what are we going to do? We're going to read the Bible. And then a little while later, the pastor reached over, took his wristwatch off, and laid it on the pulpit. And he goes, what does that mean? He goes, not a thing in the world. Not a thing in the world. Um, it doesn't mean nothing. And so this morning, that clock don't mean a thing in the world. You got an extra hour of sleep last night, so we're just going to preach, all right? Um, so we're, uh, we're going to enjoy being in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. If you found your place there, we're going to begin reading in verse number 12, and we'll read down through verse number 17. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Join me in prayer if you would. Father, I ask you to this morning to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God. Open our eyes that we could see, our ears that we could hear, or give us hearts that would tune in to your purpose for this hour to receive the instruction we need from your word. And we'll just praise you for your mercy and your grace that are evident to us. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. I want to say a, a special thanks to Pastor Caleb for preaching last week and bringing the word of God for us and did such a great job of communicating this truth as we walk through it this morning. Pastor Caleb took us through the issues that we're supposed to be putting on and how we're to put them on. And this morning, I want to move in toward the end of this section and simply going to entitle the message this morning, The Peace of Christ, The Word of Christ, and The Name of Christ. And so we have the peace of Christ and the Word of Christ and the Name of Christ. Some passages of Scripture, they almost defy being outlined. You can't seem to outline them at all. In other passages of Scripture, they outline themselves right off. And this is one of those texts that the outline just jumps off the page of the Scripture at us. That we see the peace of God, the peace of Christ, the Word of Christ, and the name of Christ. Mark Twain was being questioned about the Bible being hard to be understood. And he said, aren't there parts of the Bible that are so hard to understand? And he said, doesn't that concern you? And Mark Twain responded, the passage in Scripture that troubled me the most are not those I don't understand, but those that I do understand. You know, when we look at this text of Scripture this morning, we can see much that we understand. He said, I want you to put on kindness. 
Put on compassionate hearts. I want you to be kind. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to have humility. I want you to have meekness and patience with one another. We know what that looks like. We know what we're called to do. And this is not something that is hard to be understood, but it is definitely something that is a challenge to live out. And yet we've been given this command to live it out. Now, as we look at Colossians, it's very easy for us to be going through this for several months now and to be so close to the text that we fail to see the meta-narrative or the big picture that's going on in the entirety of the book. So just in, in short, what the big picture is, again, is that many were coming to the church of Colossae and saying, Christ is not enough. You need Christ and in order to be complete. That Yes, believe in Jesus, that's fine, but it's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and an experience. It's Jesus and knowledge. It's Jesus and obeying the law. It's Jesus and abstaining from certain behaviors. And if you have these things, then you'll be complete. And Paul spends the entire first and second chapter telling us that Christ is enough. I don't need Christ and, and anytime you have Christ and, you have left the gospel. It is Christ and Christ alone. This is where we stand. This is our hope. And then in chapter 3, we begin the imperatives of the book. And the imperatives are what we're supposed to do now. How are we to walk this out? And he begins to take us through how to walk out our completeness. How to walk out what it looks like to be complete in Christ. Not for completeness, but from completeness. He tells us in verses 5 through 11 to put off the old. And then in verse uh, 12 through 14, he tells us to put on the new. He's driving us to say, here, I want you to put these things on. And, and each of these commands are imperatives. They're in the aorist tense. And that's what we said to you a few weeks ago. It means do it now and do it now and do it now. But it's second person plural. So he's saying to all of us, everybody here, Put this on and do it now. You put these things on and put them on now. But it is not a put off and then wait a little bit and put on, but it's put off and put on and do it now. It's put off anger and put on compassion. It's put off bitterness and put on. And it's immediately we do it now and we do it continually walking through it. All of you do this now and then keep on doing this. This is the journey of the Christian life. We understand the already and the not yet. We've talked about that so often here in Colossians. But it's the already of the fact that the cross has paid our price. When, when we look at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Paid in full. Done. Talitelestai. The debt's been paid. And we, how many of you believe this morning that one day the trumpet will sound and we will see Jesus face to face? And we're going to stand before him. We understand that. And when I was growing up, we used to sing a song. And we would think about the day that Jesus is coming again. And we would sing, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Anybody ever sing that? Okay, several of you. In the sweet by and by. And it's wonderful to think about the sweet by and by. But the question that Colossians is trying to answer for us right now is how do you live through the nasty now and now? We are anticipating the sweet by and by one day, but right now we live in a world filled with sin. We live in hearts that are still struggling with the old man and how to put off the old man and put on the new. And by the way, the biggest problem that I struggle with is not what's out there, but the sin that's in here. This is where the battle must start. 
And it's a battle for our own hearts to live in a way that is surrendered to him. This is the daily, rather moment-by-moment battle of every believer, setting our minds on the reality of what Christ has done, what is above, and not on the passing shadows of temporary power and pleasure that we see down here. And it is so easy to set our hearts and our affections on what we see here because we begin to believe the delusion that they are real when those are not the things that will last eternally. And he says, lift up your eyes, set your eyes on things that are above. So then we put off and we put on. And last week we ended with that outer garment of love. And that's where I want to pick up this morning. We see these garments, and that's the way it's pictured here. It's literally to robe yourself with compassion, to robe yourself with kindness. And it's as if he's continuing this metaphor of robing himself. And look what he says in verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, the word above here is not lastly, but as the binding agent that makes all before it genuine. As a garment wrapping everything with love. It's almost the idea of a belt. Once you've put the outer garment on, you then take the belt and tie love around it. And it holds it all together. It keeps it tight against you and begins to make it a part of who you are. And this love is not a... That's probably the most overused word in the English language. We talk about love for everything, right? We talk about love for pineapple on pizza. We talk about love for dogs. I know it's hard to believe. People even talk about love for cats. It's amazing. Um, People talk about love for all kinds of things. And we can, then we'll use the same word love and we'll talk about a love for our children and a love for our wife. And we don't mean that we like pineapple like we like our wife. I hope not anyway. Um, But that's not what we're talking about. But we use this word and we overuse it. It's important to remember that when he's calling us to put on love, he's talking about an unconditional, and the the Greek word is agape. It's the unconditional, self-sacrificial love. It's a love that holds no strings, that puts itself out there completely. Literally, it's preaching the gospel through one word. It's saying, lay yourself down for the one you love. It's exactly what Christ did for What love can we have of a man laid down his life for a friend? Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for a friend. And he's talking about laying down our life. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, I've got a list of people that I'd take a bullet for. I'd do it. You know, I'd die for them. And there's so often that we might be willing to die for somebody in a flash, but we're not willing to put five minutes up with a frustrating person. And his willingness to lay down that five minutes if I'm called to do that. Or lay down the next half of the day if I'm called to do that. And the impositions that come on it. And how many of us, we could even look at our children to where they're the ones that are annoying us. And though we love them, we want them out of our hair. Because they're bothering us. And it's just that reality that we live in the fallenness of our own heart struggling between putting on love and he said I want you to wrap it around you I want love to be what binds it all together this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Spirit within us and through us I think it may be possible to some level to pretend the other things without love but it is love for others that makes all other things powerful and effective It is when I truly love you that my kindness towards you is not just a greeter at the restaurant this afternoon. 
But when I truly love you, my kindness has an impact on you. And when I have a concern for you, see, the natural man could learn to see personal um, interest. He could see a personal interest in his fair and just treatment of others. In other words, it kind of works out better for you if you're a nice guy. It kind of works out better for you if you don't steal from the company. It works out better for you in the long run if you're just easy to get along with. And so we would see this as in our best interest for us to behave this way. And, and, but this is not what the Christian ethic is calling from us. He's not saying, hey, it works out better for you to be kind, so be kind. But he's saying, no, I want you to be motivated from inside of you, not just a personality ethic or a moralistic rule or pragmatic behavior that says, well, it's going to work out better in the end if I do this but rather a love that comes from the inside out. And where does this come from? It comes from our walk with the Lord who is love. And as we walk with Him in love, we begin to truly love those who are in the body of believers around us. And not only do we love those who are in the body of believers around us, but the Bible says, I want you to go beyond just your local assembly, and I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to lay down your life for your neighbor. And I wish it stopped there, but it doesn't. He says, I want you to love your enemies. And this is where the love of Christ begins to work in us, and it works from here, and it begins to work out, and it works to our neighbors, or to our family, and to our body of believers around us, to our neighbors, and even all the way to our enemies. Because isn't that the definition of what the gospel is, where God loved his enemies and redeemed them to himself? He came to where we were and brought us back again to himself. And if we, if we have limits of where our love can go, we're not fully comprehending the gospel. Love must be what binds it all together. I love the wording here. Love is the ability to harmonize all of these virtues. Look what he says in verse number 14. And he said, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I love that word, Harmony. It's the idea that all the virtues are there and love allows them to produce the music or the concert of grace. That it begins to sound like that and love is directing all of the different graces we've mentioned already. And he's saying, well, you need some compassion and he tells compassion when to come in and he, you need kindness and he, he signals kindness, it's time to play and now meekness and now patience and, and they all begin to play together and they play in time, and they play together and produce a harmony of God's grace and his transforming power. Isn't it a miracle that God uses sinners like us to love? What a miracle. So now we move forward in our preparation for this journey from completeness. Now, I say this to you, and I've said it to you over and over again, that you are not working for completeness, you're working from it. This is so fundamental. Anytime we have an imperative in Scripture. I love what one commentary says to us. He says, now we come to three exhortations that prove still further the reality of the change in the living already described. The future of Christians may be thought here, as of elsewhere, as a pilgrim experience, that we're on a pilgrim journey. He has already been so uh, speaking of us in a dressing room, so to speak. We have undressed from what we should not have on, and we have dressed ourselves in now suitable attire of compassion and kindness. We are now apparently ready for the journey, except for the threefold need, a compass, 
which is the peace of Christ, a staff to lean on, which is the word of Christ, and a passport to give us access, which is the name of Christ. And we begin to walk forward in this journey from completeness. So that's our three, let the peace of Christ rule. John 14, 27, he said, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world has. I'm giving you a peace, and the Bible tells another place, it is a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that doesn't fit inside the thinking of this world. He's literally saying in the wording here of our text, he says, let the peace of Christ rule. And the word let and rule are the same Greek words here. It's rule that the peace of Christ would rule. It's you letting this take place. It's a choice to say, I'm not going to let the Judaizers tell me I don't have peace. I'm going to let the peace of Christ tell me that I'm settled with him. And he's pointing to who's going to be the deciding factor. You choose then to let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your heart. That's the wording here. It's the umpire. The one that calls safe at the plate. The one that calls us to be complete and whole in him. Many will come and say that you are not enough in Christ alone. You don't measure up. I thought you believed in Jesus and you're still struggling with that sin? I thought you were a Christian and you still lost your temper this week? And they would take the peace that we have and cause a a, a war going on in our spirit. And yet the reality is the peace of Christ comes along and says, I'm complete. Not because of what I've done, but what he's done. And so then what is the peace of Christ? What is this peace that we're talking about? How does it apply? The idea of the word here is to be exempt from havoc and the rage of war. We know what it is to have some peace and quiet, or we would like to know what that's like. But we know what it is to seek peace, but it's the end of hostility. So what are the, the reality of peace? Here's three things. The reality of his work that has been done for us. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his finished work that settles me at peace with God the Father because he has satisfied the just demands of a holy God and now I'm at peace with God. No longer am I an enemy, but I'm a son. No longer am I an outcast, I'm a citizen. I have peace with God through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 20, it tells us the same thing. We've already preached this text several several months ago. He said, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Here's the word, making peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace by his sacrifice. He's laid it down. All the Judaizers and the philosophers and the mystics that were coming along and they were trying to be the umpires saying, hey, you're not complete, you're not whole, you're not enough, you don't measure up. And he said, look, stop letting all that be the ruling factor and let the peace of God be the one that calls you complete. When I look at the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ, I know that I'm at peace with God and I let the peace of God call me safe at the plate. No matter what everybody else would say, there's no review that's going to overturn the call. I've been called safe at the plate because of the finished work of Christ. And so we move into the peace. Not only is it the work of Christ, but it's the transformation of our nature. See, the miracle is not that you and I fail. Really, the miracle is that we ever succeed at all. 
I mean, you think about that for a second. Do you remember times when you walked into a church service and worship was sweet? And you, who were an enemy of God, are now lifting your voice and praising the King of Kings. And tears begin to well up in your eyes as you consider the fact that you are so unworthy of His grace. By the way, you didn't do that on your own. He made a change in you to want to do that. You remember a time where compassion came out of your heart. And you're like, man, where did that come from? It didn't come from me. And when there was a moment... However brief the moment was of humility, it had to be the grace of God that did it. And this is the peace of God because I see the working of God in me. It gives me peace to know that yes, I fail him and yes, I wander away, but I see the fact that his nature is at work in me. And it's conforming me to his son. And the peace of God wells up in my soul. Because I know that in myself I could not desire these things. And so his peace begins to take hold. See, it's the peace of God that rules in our hearts. It's in the heart that we deal with this. Isn't that where we face our doubts? When the peace of God is ruling in my heart, I can let go of the debt that is owed me. I can lay down suspicion. I can lay down the struggle to be right and to win and to be better than others. You know, if we can ever get in our minds the work that Christ has done on our behalf, then we can lay down what everyone else owes us. And we can say the, the, the debt is cleared and the peace of God could reign. And there are moments in our feeble struggling for it. And I think it's C.S. Lewis that says, he said that, when they desire to glory me, glorify God, he is pleased even with their stumblings. What a God. What a God. And so the peace of God is the work that he's done. It's the work he's doing in me right now. But I think even bigger than this here, here's the picture of the peace of God. It's the comfort of his abiding presence. The peace of God is being in his presence turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. We'll address it in just a moment. It's just a couple of pages toward the front of your Bible. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9 is where I'll read in just a moment. The comfort of his presence. How many of you remember being as a child, being in a, a thunderstorm or a snowstorm and the power went out? You know what I'm talking about? Man, when the power went out at our house, it was exciting. I mean, we're going to have open flames all over the house. What could be more fun than that, you know? We're going to have to get flashlights around and walk around through the house. And I, I remember the power went out, and because the power went out, the pump was off to the well, and we're, we're scavenging to get water. And I, I remember one time in particular, you know, we're trying to store up water, and I was in, like, survival mode as a kid. I'm like, I'm helping us survive, you know? And then the power comes back on, and I'm disappointed. I'm like, oh, man, the adventure's over. Now everything works again. But, you know, isn't it interesting that when we're in those storms that we're not afraid as children? Why were we not afraid as children? Because our confidence was in our parents to care for us. And, and I think that's what he's trying to get across to us, is that if we could go through every... And as a matter of fact, I actually look forward to storms. Because mom and dad were my protector. And I think that's what maybe James is driving at. 
Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Why? Because the peace of God rules in my heart. My heavenly father is with me. He's not going to leave me. I can make it through the storm. Everything's good. And I'm resting in his presence. Look if you would in Philippians 4. He says this. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is present. Do not be anxious for anything except. You're not reading your Bibles, are you? Except is not in there, okay? There's no exception. Do not be anxious for anything. Nothing should cause us to worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, in verse number 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Literally, God's going to build a fort around our heart in the midst of thanksgiving, in the midst of praise, and God garrisons our heart from the storms of life, and the peace of God will abide with us. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What is he saying? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Put your mind on something that is higher than here. He says, and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Look at the next words, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, it started off with the peace of God will be there with you. And now we end up the end of the check, and the God of peace is walking with me. You see, it's not just peace that he sends to me, but he walks with me through the valleys. He walks with me through the trials, and the fact that he is present with me gives me peace. The peace of Christ rules. We know the Psalms, Psalms 23, don't we? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. I love that text. If you're reading it for yourself sometime, notice how he starts the chapter off by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me. What is he talking? He's talking to someone about the shepherd. But then we get to that middle part of the chapter. And he goes, Yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And he changes who he's talking to. For thou art with me. Immediately he begins to talk to the shepherd now. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Because he will never leave us nor forsake us. And his peace reigns. A group of people had booked passage on a ship across the Atlantic back in a, an age gone by when it was the cheapest way to get across. Storm was seen on the horizon and the captain said, I want you to go into your quarters and shut the door. We'll come and get you after the storm passes. No need for any of you guys to be worried about this. Just lock yourself in and wait. They went down to their quarters and unfamiliar with the storms of the sea, began to allow anxiety to build amongst that group. 
we got to go talk to the captain. There's no way anybody out there has survived. We're probably sinking right now, and we don't know it. we got to go and find out what's happening. They drew straws and nominated someone to go. And he precariously picked his way along the outside of that ship and went up the, the levels to where the captain was at, at the helm, and opened the door and saw the captain and rushed back down to the hold where everybody else was at. And he opened the door and he said, it's okay, folks. I've seen the face of the captain and he's not afraid. Isn't that what we do when we pray? What we do in the midst of a storm is we climb up to the top of the ship and we open the door to where the captain is seated and we see the face of the captain and he's not afraid. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So the peace of God would rule. Then I want you to see the word of Christ should dwell. Again, the word let and dwell are the same words. Different words than what rule was, but now a different word. Now to dwell literally means to dwell in the word of God, that the word of God may dwell in you. Dwell in this to let the word of God abide. It, it means to actually take the word of God and allow it to have home, a place called home inside of you. Is the word of God at home in us? And he says, let it dwell in you richly. Let it have free reign. What is he saying? If, if it was a guest coming to your house today, it would say, give him access to the refrigerator. Tell him to help himself to whatever he wants. Men, it means you hand him the remote. Right? You've got full access. Whatever you want to do, let the word of God dwell richly in you. Let it be so free to run around your heart and do the work that it's supposed to do within you. Now, this word of Christ that is being referenced here is the message that proclaims Christ. Not necessarily saying, let the words that Christ spoke, but he's saying, whatever message that proclaims Christ, let that dwell in your presence. Let it dwell in your hearts. Let it be something that fills up your meetings. I think all that was unpacked in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians is what is in view here. Let the word about Christ dwell in you richly. How does he say to do this? He said, well, I want you to do it in wisdom. And let's look at the text again. I'm going to go back to Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He said, I want you to teach and I want you to admonish one another. And I want you to do so from wisdom. As a matter of fact, Romans 15, 14 tells us that you are able to admonish one another. Now, let me just say about admonishing, admonishing means to encourage or to correct. It could even have a measure of coming alongside, hey, you didn't do that exactly right. It's calling to account in the admonishing, and he's saying you are able to admonish one another. You see, the admonition inside a local assembly is not just from the pastor to the people. Nor is it just from the people to the pastor. But both admonish, admonishments should be there, but admonishing should be from the people to the people. That we walk up to our brothers in Christ and we admonish them in their faith and we admonish them in the word of God and we lift them up and encourage them as they're walking through this. But let me say this, you can't do that if you don't know them. And that's why it's so important that you be gathered together and that's why we love the growth groups and what they're doing of getting people together. And it takes time to know somebody, but I find that oftentimes church people are like third grade little girls. 
Here's what I mean by that. I don't think they like me. Well, why? They're not talking to me. Did you talk to them? No. How do you know they don't like you? They're not talking to me. Did you talk to them? No. And we go back and forth of this cycle. He that hath friends must show himself friendly. Here, here's, what, here's the word we've been kicking around often around here in our staff meetings and even in our deacons meetings. It's intentional interaction. And that means you get off of your blessed assurance and you walk over to somebody that you don't know and say, hey, my name is, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was 12. It's stepping up and stepping into somebody else's zone and introducing yourself and beginning to admonish one another this Wednesday. And, and by the way, there's great benefit in opening the Word of God with one another. This Wednesday, I was sitting here in the auditorium, as I like to do on occasion. I'll come in and kind of dim the lights, and I'll sit and do some reading and meditation and prayer. And nobody was here. I think it was only maybe one other person in the building, and I was just kind of quiet. And the feeling of discouragement kind of came over me. I'm just like, I'm so frustrated with this or that, and I just don't seem to be making the progress I want to have. And I, I begin to feel this heaviness of frustration. And don't look at me like you think pastors don't think that way, all right? Because we do, all right? You know, you know that look you get with somebody across the room, and you see them, and you're like, oh, they're mad at me? I have to deal with that with all of you every Sunday morning, all right? Um, Jeremiah said, don't be afraid of their faces. And uh, the fact is, they're probably not upset with you. They probably had pizza too late last night. But the devil likes to play those things in your head, too. And I remember feeling that heaviness of discouragement, and I just picked up the phone, and I called my friend Aaron Hines. He pastors down in Ohio, and I picked him up, and I said, Aaron, I'm just sitting here praying a little bit, and I'm just a little discouraged. And he said, well, I'm glad you called, Mike. You got a Bible handy? And I said, sure. And we turned over to the book of Psalms, and he says, why is my soul cast down? Hope thou in God. And it was the word of God and the people of God and then prayer to God that allowed the peace of God and the word of God to dwell in our hearts. And when you leave a moment like that, you can charge hell with a squirt gun because you know that you have the power to accomplish the end because it's not in us, but the word of God dwells in us and it empowers us for the work. He said, I want you to do this with wisdom. I, I love this. One commentator said, he said this verse is focusing on the collective body of worship. He is urging that the message about Christ would be at the center of the corporate experience. That everything we do would be about Jesus Christ. But he said specifically, how do we do it? Singing. Singing. And he goes into this singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And man, I love to sing. I love to lift up my voice and sing. I love to hear you sing. I love the fact that our church is a singing church. And we lift it up and he said, let's sing psalms. And psalms are what David and other the guys wrote, about 150 of them. And there's a few others scattered throughout the Bible that would be sung by the church in 1st, 2nd, 3rd century. It was almost exclusively the songs were being sung in the church. 
But then pastors said, you know what, I think what is learned in song is learned long, and so let's write some other songs. And we would write songs that came out like, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And these were put to music, and the church began to stand and confess them together, and we're admonished through the songs. The spiritual songs is the idea that all that we should sing inside the gathering is spiritual songs. We're not making this a platform for our ability to sing secular songs. I don't think there's necessarily a prohibition for Christians with secular music, but I do think Christians ought to be very careful about what we put in our hearts. When we begin to look at the world around us, and I I don't have the time to go into this, but Pastor Caleb is doing a study on guardrails right now. I'm sure we can come across this at some point in this, but the music we listen to matters. What we put into our ears matters. Just three simple words. What is the content of the song you're listening to? What is the context that it takes you to? And what is the culture that it's driving? Those are good questions to ask as we begin to consider what we put in. But he said, I want you to sing. I love to hear the congregation sing. To sing voices lifted up. I mean, I I have no problem hearing somebody sing a special. But really what I want to do when they get done singing is hush so we can sing that with you now. Because I want to sing it all together. And let's lift our voices and admonish one another. So, with thanksgiving in our hearts. And then finally, in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Jesus, the scope. The scope of this command is whatever you do in word or deed. Well, that's a pretty broad scope. There's absolutely nothing that finds a prohibition or an exception or a loophole. He said, in everything you do, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, in harmony with who he is, under the authority of him as Lord. Do what you do in that reality. Not a specific command for all circumstances, but principles of relationship that govern our actions. That as we walk this out, I want to do what I do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, giving thanks again as you do these things, as his representative. And so we conclude with thankfulness. He says in verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, with thankfulness in your heart. And verse 17, giving thanks. I mentioned in the Lord's table when we're talking about that, that the word Eucharist comes from this word giving thanks. Verse 15 and 17 is the same word. It's the idea to give thanks, to stop and take an inventory of what you've been given and give God thanks for what you've given. And the idea here is that when we come to the Lord's table, we're stopping and taking inventory and we're giving him thanks for what he's poured out upon us. And that word is devolved and after devolving for some time, it refers to only the bread and that's not what it was intended to be in the first place. It's to be a service of thanksgiving. But I love the middle one. The middle one is the word cherish or the word that's usually translated grace. And he's about singing. He said singing with grace in your hearts or singing with thanksgiving in your hearts. And when this word is translated in the context of God pouring it out upon us, it's translated grace. But in several instances, when it's coming from us back to God, it's translated thanksgiving. The song of thanksgiving is the rebound of God's grace in our hearts. That when grace strikes us, the sound that it makes is gratitude. And we begin to pour out thanksgiving and praise before him. And so this morning, 
You cannot walk through the Christian life. And someone even said early on in this study of Colossians that the rebar of the book of Colossians is thanksgiving. You're not going to walk through the Christian life without having a healthy practice of stopping and giving thanks. So I was sitting there in my study this week and I thought, hmm, I wonder if we could have some kind of service that we could intentionally stop everything we're doing and focus on what Christ has done for us, the community of believers around us, and the hope that is coming ahead of us. It'd be nice if we had just like a really tailored service to accomplish those three things on a regular basis. And then it dawned on me, we have the Lord's table. And when we gather around the Lord's table, that's what we're doing. We're giving thanks for what Christ has done, what He is doing, and what He will do, and that He's doing it in all of us. And so we redound from grace to thanksgiving. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the sufficiency of it. Lord, I pray, Father, that what is said this morning, that, Lord, would stir our thoughts would not leave us just with a settledness, but would leave us with an unsettledness even. We would go on and think on these things. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would do a work in my heart today. Bless us now as we close in worship. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Let's stand to our